Instead of the scripture in the bulletin, I'm reading two others from the Gospel of John. These come from the 11th chapter and the 9th chapter, and these are the words of the one whose birth we've assembled to celebrate. Jesus said, If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. I'd like to read words that I believe are fitting to the occasion. They're the lyrics of a song made popular several years ago by Jimmy Dean. I would imagine it's familiar to many of you. Not quite a Christmas carol. It says, Every morning at the mine you could see him arrive. He stood six foot six and weighed 245. Kind of broad at the shoulder and narrow at the hip, and everyone knew you didn't give no lip to Big John. Nobody seemed to know where John called home. He just drifted into town and stayed on alone. He didn't say much, kind of quiet and shy. And if you spoke at all, you just said hi to Big John. Then came the day at the bottom of the mine when a timber cracked and men started crying. Miners were praying and hearts beat fast, and everybody thought that they'd breathe their last, except John. Through the dust and the smoke of this man-made peril walked a giant of a man that the miners knew well. Grabbed a sagging timber and gave out with a groan, and like a giant oak tree, he just stood there alone, Big John. And with all of his strength, he gave a mighty shove, then a miner called out, There's a light up above, and 20 men scrambled from a would-be grave. Now there's only one left down there to save, Big John. With jacks and timbers, they started back down. Then came that rumble way down in the ground. And when smoke and gas belched out of that mine, everybody knew it was the end of the line for Big John. Now they never reopened that worthless pit. They just placed a marble stand in front of it. These words were written on that stand. At the bottom of this mine lies a mighty big man, Big John. If you're wondering why I chose those words, I'm sure that you're thinking first of this image of this giant of a heroic man with a beam across his shoulder, voluntarily giving his own life in order that others might survive. And that would be fitting, wouldn't it? Because we understand that that is precisely why Jesus became a part of history, why he assumed the flesh in order that he might die, in order that we might live. But that isn't the reason that I chose these words. I chose them because of the excited cry of the miner, there's a light up above. In the fruitful imagination of Mark Twain, a birthday party was held for a young teenage girl named Becky Thatcher. And on the guest list of the many friends invited was the name of Tom Sawyer. As a part of the festivities, Becky and her friends went out to explore the caves that lined the banks of the nearby Mississippi River. Being more adventuresome than the others, she and Tom went further into the caves. Lost in the happy talk of youth, they went deeper than they intended, and when their torch burned out, they were lost in total darkness. 
On their hands and knees, they crawled along the floor of the cavern, trying to find a way out. But after what seemed like hours, they were only more lost than when they started. And Becky sat down, her back against the damp wall of the cave, and began to sob in utter despair, sure that this would be the last day of her young life. Not quite so easily discouraged, Tom left her side and continued his desperate search for a way out. Coming to a bend in the tunnel, he looked ahead and saw a shaft of light angling down through a cleft in the earth. Calling back to Becky, he said, there's a light up above. Taking her by the hand, he led her to the place where they found an opening just large enough to allow them to scramble from their would-be grave. While Jesus lived among us, he said a number of very important things about himself, things that no one who is sincerely looking for religious and moral truth dares to ignore. He said, I am the vine, I am the good shepherd, I am the bread of life. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who lives and believes in me, even though he might die, he will live. And Jesus said, I am the light of the world. On this long black night, I'd like to think with you about the meaning of these words of the Savior. He spoke these words in the context of a miracle. In the ninth chapter of the Gospel of John, the path of our Lord Jesus intersects that of a man who had been born blind. Jesus freed him from his lifelong bondage to darkness, and in that context, he said, I am the light of the world. Like many of the Lord's teachings, these words have different levels of meaning. When Jesus said, if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he does stumble because the light is not in him. And at first, these words have the appearance of being nothing more than common sense. As if Jesus is saying, when you walk in the dark, be careful because you can't see where you're going. But when we consider his words more carefully... We recognize that he isn't talking primarily about things of the flesh, but about things of the spirit. And so it is when Jesus declared, I am the light of the world. In common speech and on the pages of scripture, light and sight are linked. In the history written by John, the eyes of this man born blind were seeing for the first time in his life. You and I can barely imagine what he saw and what he thought and what he felt about what he saw. There were places of great importance in his life, places known only by the touch of his hands. There was the house in which he had been born and where he had lived all of his life, both as a companion and then as a burden to his parents. There was the familiar place alongside the road where he was taken to beg. Probably that same place where Jesus found him and his life was changed. 
There was the synagogue he attended with his family, singing and chanting the praises of God, hearing the scriptures read and expounded, buoyed by the encouragement of fellow believers. All of these places and more, once only roughly formed in his imagination by other senses, were now seen for the first time. There were people important in his life, but recognizable to him only by the sound of their voices. His mother, that devoted Hebrew woman who held him in her arms as a baby, nurturing him from her own body, increasingly concerned as the signs became more and more unavoidable that there was something terribly wrong with her son. And perhaps he remembered her anguished prayers prayers for his wholeness, and prayers for his peace, her peace. There was his father, a man whose strong arms were often a comfort to his wife, a man whose skilled hands provided for those who shared his name, whose prayers were of a different form, but of the same substance as his mother's. And there were others, possibly brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles and cousins, neighbors, the familiar passers-by who dropped coins into his cup, the rabbi who sang and taught on the Sabbath, all of these folks had faces invented by his imagination. But now he came to know them literally face to face. It's interesting what imagination can do with faces. Part of our worship services are on the radio, you may know, and years ago, I received a, a letter from a woman who lived in, I believe, Midland. She was a Methodist and said that she often listened to our broadcast on her way to her own church. She said, Reverend Polk, you and I have never met, but from the sound of your voice, I can tell that you're tall, slender, and have very dark hair. I'm not sure that's funny, but it is funny. And we think about this man who was now allowed to see for the first time of greatest importance to us and probably of greatest importance to him and very much in line with Christ's claim to be the light of the world is another kind of sight that came to this man. He had heard the opening words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he had heard the testimony of the psalmist that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament proclaims his handiwork from his infancy, in his home, from his parents, in the synagogue, from his elders. He had heard such things over and over. They were so familiar to him that they were now etched in his memory. But his appreciation of the depth and the glory of the testimony of creation was limited by his blindness. But now, for the first and exciting time, he could actually see the bright and hopeful gathering of light at the beginning of the day and the restful glow of twilight. The birds, once known only by their songs, flowers sensed only by their aroma, the majesty of the mountains, the vastness of the desert, the movement of the wind and the trees, the ever-changing face of the sea, such things as these that are so common to most people were utterly unknown by this man. But then, in an instant, at the touch of Jesus, 
their beauty and their wonder became real to him. And for him, as one whose eyes had been opened by the mercy and the power of the Son of God, the words, the heavens declare the glory of God, assumed a new and a glorious meaning. From what John tells us about this man and his encounter with Christ, we have good reason to believe that when we gather around the throne of God in everlasting glory, we will see his face in the crowd. By the power of God, he was released from the darkness that once was his life. By the grace of God, he was born again, and the eyes of his soul were opened as well. An Englishman by the name of John Newton was almost certainly aware of the marvelous story of this man's healing and remembered it when he wrote these words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. Several of the gospel songs that many of us grew up singing and loving were written by an American lady named Fanny Crosby. Among other words, she wrote, Someday the silver cord will break, and I no more as now shall sing. And all the joy when I shall wake within the palace of the king, and I shall see him face to face and tell the story saved by grace. I remind you who know and tell you who do not that Fanny Crosby, like the man in John's story, was blind. And yet she said with great joy, I shall see him face to face. Our Lord Jesus said, I am the light of the world. On this long black night, nearly the longest and the darkest of the entire year, with those miners trapped in Jimmy Dean's songs and the teenagers lost in Mark Twain's imagination, we look about us with the eyes of faith and we cry out, there's a light up above. With those Hebrew shepherds startled to hear the voices of angels, and those men we call wise wending their way, always looking heavenward, with voices filled with surprise and praise, we say there's a light up above. With every man, every woman, every young person and child who has been led by the Spirit of God to embrace the Son of God, with all who have felt the burden of sin lifted from the shoulders of their consciences and had their eyes of their understanding open to the glories of creation and the truth of God, we say to all who will hear, there's a light up above. With believers everywhere and in all times who have known the gloom of grief and despair, the darkness of a world that adores things not of God and derives its pleasures from things forbidden to the righteous, we find comfort and relief in the fellowship of those who, with us, have visited an ancient hill, have stood by an old rugged cross, and from the vantage point of its height have seen and declare there's a light up above. Amen.